here this morning. We're in a 13-week series called Surviving Suffering. You notice it's not accomplishing suffering. It's not conquering suffering. It's uh, surviving suffering. There will be a day that uh, we will be completely and entirely free from suffering. And it is not today. <laughs> it is not here on this life. In fact, in this life, there's suffering that takes place in everybody uh, to one degree um, or another. And we want to understand what the Bible says about how do you survive it? How do you make it through? How do you come out on the other side in the process of this suffering? And we're looking at going through 13 weeks. I just want to do a really fast review. Uh, the first week we talked about the way to survive suffering is you need to understand its origin. The second week, we talked about embracing God's unconditional love. And the third week is to look uh, for answers bigger than your questions, why? In other words, when we're suffering, we're always asking the question, why? That's a good question to ask. Ask the question, why? But in the book of Job, uh, God gave Job better answers to his question, why? And even if he gave him the answer to that question, the information that God gave Job was more productive for him to survive suffering. So that's what that was about. You can look it up on the website um, if you have not gone through those. When we suffer, there's a couple different degrees um, of suffering. Uh, degrees that go horrifically to the core of our being, the core of our soul. And other degrees are not nearly as bad. And that means there's different people that go through worse suffering than others. Let me just give you an example of degrees that I'm talking about is uh, some people go, oh my goodness, I've got to go to church on Sunday morning. That is suffering. And the reason why it's suffering is because every time I pull up, there's not even a parking spot right in the front. In fact, sometimes I have to park clear back in the corner. And I have to go all the way back in the corner, and I'll park, and I'll have to walk all the way up there. By the time I get to the doors, I will tell you I'm already ticked off, angry because of what, added, what, took, what literally took place. And then all of a sudden, it's raining outside. And on the days that it's raining, that is written, I really don't want to go to church because of the amount I have to suffer during that time. So that is a degree of suffering. I'm sorry if I have no sympathy for you. <laughs> but that is a degree of suffering. Let's go to the other perspective. Let's go down to the lower perspective, one that cuts deep. Maybe it's a, a lady looks back and she remembers a time that she was molested at uh, 10 years old. And when she uh, was molested, something just pierced her heart, pierced her soul, pierced her mind so deep that she couldn't even speak about it. And the suffering was so hard that she couldn't even say it to her mom. She couldn't even say it to her dad. She couldn't even say to anybody, even a friend, that this took place. So she just cried herself to sleep every single night, night after night after night. And in this process of this hurt and the guilt and this, this grieving that, that took place, she started to wonder, am I desirable for anybody? Will anybody ever even love me anymore? Sure enough, after adolescence, there were some people that showed some interest, some guys that showed some interest. And so as these guys showed some interest in her, she says, oh, I'm still lovable, I can be loved. But in the process of starting to date guys, it turned into um, automatically sleeping with them right away. Because she thought, if I'm going to get love, this is the only way to receive it, because this is the way that it responded to me. So it was one guy after another guy after another guy after another guy. And every time she did it, it was like picking up the knife that took place 10 years ago and stabbed it into her heart again, wanting to be loved, but not feeling loved through this at all. And the more she made mistakes, the harder and deeper that it hurt inside of her. And as it was hurting so deep, she's like, I got to get out of this. And the only way I can get out of it is to put a substance in my body that would just take me into a place that's not even in this world. Drugs and alcohol were then her friend. Why? Because at least 
brought some relief to pain. But then all of a sudden she wakes up. And when she wakes up from those, it's still bad again. So she goes back to them. There is times in her life that she does try to put her life together. Um, times where, well, maybe I'll get married. And if I married this person, then, then I'm sure that things will work out. So they, she gets married, but then that person leaves. And she blames herself. It's because I didn't know how to relate to him. I didn't know how to love him. I didn't know how to understand him. We just could not make it. So much fighting in the home. And, of course, you know, she has one kid, two kids, three kids, with two men, three men, four men, all different. So she has all these men that are coming in, but yet she would classify herself as somebody who is raising their children uh, alone. And then she's 50 years old, and she looks back at her life. And when she looks back at her life, the sword that pierced her, that put her down a, a horrific amount of suffering, she saw that her kids were embracing just as well and doing the exact same thing that she did to heal her broken heart. So then she comes to church, Jefferson Baptist Church, and then she sits in the pew, and she looks at the title, Surviving Suffering, and it makes her mad. The reason why it makes her mad is because she says, you have no idea what I've been going through my entire life. And is there any sort of an answer in this world to be able to survive this? There's two different degrees of suffering. The book of Job is written specifically to that lady through that situation. And we all have stories, and I really wish that was a minority, but I wish we all have stories that go to some degree that pierces the core of our being and that pierces the core of our heart. And the book of Job was handed to us to look at his story and to understand what he did and the principles he held on to and the things that he, he grabbed a hold of so tightly to survive this suffering. So let's look at one passage, and I will tell you there's a passage that he's probably the lowest that uh, he has ever been. But before we get to the passage, we'll do number one in our notes. To survive suffering, cry to God by placing your pain on him and then embrace him aggressively. The passage is Job 4, 6, and I will tell you that this passage is Job's most desperate part in his life. It is when suffering has touched his heart, has touched his, pierced his soul, it has pierced his mind, it has pierced his emotion. He even gets to the point, it's like, I don't even want to be on this earth anymore. God, please even take me out. Let's read this passage and look at the words he says. And as we look at the words he says, we'll find the principles from it. Job 4, 6 through 10. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let, me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. I just want to look at verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. The arrows of the Almighty, who is the Almighty? Speaking specifically to God. It doesn't say the arrows of the perpetrator. It doesn't say the arrows of sin. It doesn't say the arrows of the past. It doesn't say the arrows of pain. It says the arrows of the Almighty are in God. In the depths of his despair, he is saying some radical, radical words. And he says, God's terrors are marshaled against me. Terrors, not of the situation, not of pain, not even terrors of an offender, but he even says, God's terrors are against me. 
But then he responds at the end of the verse that is an aggressive embrace. There's no blame that is taking place. There is a statement that is taking place. And if there was a blame, there would not be an aggressive embrace. An aggressive embrace. So he's not blaming, but he's saying the words. And then he is aggressively embracing God. Then I will still have this consolation. My joy and relenting pain that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. An aggressive embrace to God. After he took all of his sin, all of his garbage, all of his evil, and even placed it on God. There's another time that he was at his bottom, lowest in despair, and it's Job 19. I will tell you, he does the same thing. Same thing, says, have pity on me, my friends, have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Then 25, what does he do? The next verse, he instantly comes across with an aggressive embrace. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns for me. It's the same pattern that has taken place. He's putting it all on God and then an aggressive embrace specifically to God. King David also spoke like this, as many psalms do. Psalms 38 says, For the arrows have pierced me, and your hand has caused, me down, caused down upon me. And then at the end of the chapter, that's the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, he says, O Lord, do not forsake me. Be not far from me. O my God, come, come quickly to help me. O Lord, my Savior. You put it on, God, and then all of a sudden you get this aggressive embrace again. And then you even have Job 13, which is a very small passage. But it's again, though he slays me. Speaking of God, though he slays me, yet I hope in him. We'll ask the question, and we definitely want to ask the question, what has taken place? What is going on with this language as Job is in great and deep despair? What has taken place is that evil, pain, sin, and suffering is something that we can hardly bear and we want specifically off us. And we will do anything in our power to get it out of our mind, to get it off of our body, to get it off anything we possibly could do. But I will tell you that if something is on you, a perpetrator is on you, a situation, a circumstance, anything that is horrifically on you and you try to get it off you, do you know what you have to do? You have to think about that person before you get it off. You have to speak about that person before you get it off. You have to speak about the situation before you get it off because it's on your mind. The situation's there. The person's there. Everything is on your mind. And then as soon as you think about it, what happens? It goes worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's a cycle that we cannot even survive with. And since it's a cycle we cannot survive with, we do what most everybody does when they are offended. They shove it deep down in their heart. Shove it deep down in their soul. And they do not speak it from their lips. They don't even say it from their lips at all. Why? Because it is so difficult to think about. It's so difficult to, to even put a thought process to it. It is so difficult. What Job is doing is he's wanting God on his mind completely and entirely. He wants God on his heart completely and entirely. He wants God in the situation completely and entirely. He wants absolutely no perpetrator. He wants nothing out there. Doesn't want to communicate to him. Doesn't want to think about him. Doesn't want anything to do it. He puts all evil suffering and say, God, 
please give me help. God, please give me help. As everything else in this world is removed. Now, this is Old Testament language. What is New Testament language? New Testament language is that Jesus went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, what took place? All evil, all suffering, all sin, all violations were put where? Put specifically on his shoulders as he took him to the grave. Specifically on his shoulders. In fact, Martin Luther, he made a comment one time, is that Jesus never sinned, but he is the most what was the exact words? I want to use exact words. Got to be correct. He was the biggest sinner that's ever lived, is what he said. And the reason why is because every sin that's ever taken place in this entire world was placed specifically on him, and then he took those specifically to the grave. Never sinned, but yet he died for every sin. He suffered for everybody's suffering. He suffered for everything that literally took place. And in New Testament, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go to the bottom of the cross, go to the foot of the cross. And cry out with a heart saying, God, I give this to you, all the evil, all the sin, all my baggage, all my past, everything, because that is where it is washed clean. That is where it is dealt with. That is where it is conquered. That is where it is washed out. But see, looking in the Old Testament as they are speaking, what happens if you put a perpetrator in your mind instead of God? What takes place is most of the Psalms, you put God in your mind, he goes with you into despair, and then you come out praising. Have you ever read the Psalms? There's laments right at the top. He comes into it very aggressively, he goes into the despair, and then they come out praising, because God is in their mind. They go into it with God, they go through it with God, and then they come out worshiping. But if you put a perpetrator there instead, you go, what? You start with it from the perpetrator, you go in with, into the despair with the perpetrator, and then you don't come out praising, you come out dead or worse off on the other side. God said, I want you to come to me, me alone, and make the cry deep, make the cry strong, make the cry powerful, make the cry from your heart, and I want no anything else to even be touched in your mind. This does six things when we do that, and we want to look at the six things that it does when we go and we put only God in our mind, only God in our heart, only God in our plea, only God in our cry, and we push everything out and deal with everything at the bottom of the cross. The first thing it does, number two, is crying to God, place, embrace, turns a negative thought into a prayer. Every time a situation comes to your mind, there is almost a cursing that comes out of your heart, your, your mouth, or even your heart. Every time a perpetrator comes to your mind, there's a cursing that comes out of your heart that comes out of your mind. Every time something that's evil that has hit you, something is going to come out and it's not ever healthy, it's not ever good, and it takes you down a path that is difficult for you to even survive in. But every time God comes into your mind through the situation, what takes place is you're not just saying something. You're saying a prayer every single time. God, please help. God, I want to know. God, help me. God, I don't understand. God, I have to have. God, I need to be able to grasp. Everything comes to the foot of the cross when we put God on the first part of our prayer or the first part of our plea. Everything that we say in our mind, everything we say in our heart, it's got to be God first because we're going to cry. We're either going to cry or we're going to stuff. 
And if we stuff, it never remains stuffed. It always comes up again to the top. We've got to cry, put God on your tongue, put God on your heart, put God completely on your mind. The Bible describes suffering and evil as a fire. It's a fire that consistently burns. In fact, when it starts talking about hell and hellfire, what is it talking about? It's evil and suffering to grown to the fullest um, extent. It is something that if somebody does something to you, what it is, it's evil and fire, practically swallowing a pill and going into your system. It has to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with between you and specifically God. The next thing it does, number three, crying to God, place, embrace, puts another one in the room when you contemplate suicide. When I say when you contemplate suicide, suicide is on the tips of our more minds than we really even want to imagine. We really want to even think about. How do we know what's on the tips of our minds? 2015, the suicide was the second leading cause of death in 15, uh, from people 15 years to 34 years old. The second leading cause of death. And it was the third leading cause of death from children from the ages of 10 um, to 14. Wife works in a public school, and I will tell you that it's on people's mind. And they've been studying why is suicide consistently coming up? Why is Satan bringing that to the surface of people's mind? And, and uh, one of the areas were, um, were clinical, but the majority of the areas were relational. It's when relationships were broken. It's when rejection has taken place. It's when loneliness is happening. It's when bullying is happening. It's when physical abuse, sexual abuse. It's when isolation, when there's nobody around in your presence or nobody around in your mind. Because you can have people around in your presence, but nobody around in your mind. That's when the thoughts of, what if I was gone? That's when they start to come. But bring your cry to God. Remember what takes place in Psalms. Remember what takes place in Job. Bring your cry to God. Bring him at the top. He will walk with you in the despair, meaning that he will be in the room when you're thinking about it. He will be with you in your thoughts as you're thinking about it. In fact, if you make a consistent, constant goal of making your cry consistently going to God, he won't leave your thoughts. He won't leave your mind. He'll be replacing it. And I will tell you that when those thoughts come, there's somebody else will be in the room. You will not be isolated. You will not be alone. Number four, crying to God, place, embrace, addresses a judge without giving a single thought to a perpetrator. I was reading a book, and in the book there's a story about this um, high school girl that went on a date with, a, with another man, with another guy, and, and after they went on the date, she ended up getting date raped. And uh, she came back, and she was horrifically damaged, frustrated, mad, doesn't know what to do, didn't know where to go. And finally, she got the courage to speak to her mom. And as she spoke to her mom, she explained the situation. She explained the pain. She explained the despair. She explained how she felt to her mom, but it was not easy talking to her whatsoever. But as her mom was listening to it, she says, we want to help you. You need to talk to your dad because something needs to be done with what's taking place. So, of course, the daughter would say, no, I can't talk to my dad, I can't talk to my dad. The reason why, because it brings so much more up, it brings so much more up, and finally she got the courage. Her mom and the daughter came to talk to her dad, and she explained it to her dad of what took place. Her dad looked at her and shrugged his shoulders and said, boys will be boys. That knife cut twice as much as even the first knife. That knife would cut twice as much as the first knife. Because what takes place is when an offense happens, we start crying out, does anybody 
feel the pain? Does anybody know the pain? Does anybody, uh, does anybody understand what I'm going through? And the person that would understand would be a father. The person that would understand would be a father who would protect, a father that would go after, a father that would get something done in the process of what is happening, a father that has a listening ear that is there. A God of love must be a perfect God of justice, and he is. A God of love must be a perfect God of justice, and he is. Moses saw God in Exodus 34. He's one of the only individuals that saw God in his massive glory. And I will tell you that when he saw God, it was God saying, I cannot show you my face because he was going to go and says, God, I want to know who I believe in. I want to know who I'm worshiping. I want to know who's going to be walking beside me in this situation and circumstances as I lead the people through the desert. I want to know. And Moses says, show me you, God. Show me your face. God says, if I show you my face, you will die But what I'll do, so you know that I'm with you, is I will show you my back. Therefore, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'll stand in front of you. And as I stand in front of you, I'll allow you to look up without being dead, and I'll allow you to see me for who I am. And this is what took place. Moses went to the cleft of the rock. God stood before him. Moses looked up and saw God. And what was the description that was written about what what Moses saw? Exodus 34 gives it. And he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What's interesting about that is everything else that's mentioned in the front would not work if God left the guilty unpunished. God says, I am a perfect judge. I am a perfect judge. Completely, holy, and acceptable. And some people even need to even understand that instead of the pieces of love. Because the church, the Bible, the preachers, what do they say? Hey, forgive, 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 forgive. And they don't speak behind that. God is a God of justice, but what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is literally taking the hook out of your mouth and handing it to God and saying, God, you can judge, I can't, therefore do what you need to do. And what happens is it allows us to release ourselves in the surviving peace of this suffering. We work in Sierra Leone in Africa, and there was a massive civil war that took place, and it happened in our lifetime, the majority of our lifetime, because it ended in 2001. During this civil war, family members were killed. Intimidation was done by cutting people's arms off, cutting people's feet off, cutting people's legs off. Houses were burned. Wives and daughters were raped. Uh, People were not only killed, they were completely and entirely tortured in front of people. A horrific war, breaking almost every single war crime you can possibly imagine. They want children soldiers, so they go after a child and they say, okay, you no longer have a family except us. Give them a machine gun and then drug them. And their first job was to go kill their parents because that's what sealed off the adoption. They didn't kill their parents. The child had to go and kill their parents with them in force. So the child, of course, had to explain where his parents were. They, of course, went to the parents and the story goes on from there. And I have a friend over there named Ben Margay that suffered through that war horrifically with one of his, adopters be, uh, one of his sisters being adopted uh, as a sex slave and then also another sister that was shot and killed. 
All this stuff took place. But as all this stuff took place, how did the war end? All the generals, all the leaders, all the chiefs, they all were prosecuted. All went to prison. Some were even killed. But everybody else was pardoned. Everybody else was pardoned. So you have a civil war that has taken place, the rebels, and then you also have the government, and horrificness took place. And after all the horrificness takes place of whose side are you on, all those people now live together. And as they're living together, as with Ben even last time I was in Sierra Leone in November, we were driving by and it says, how do you guys, you know, live together? And we were talking about the war and he was actually pointing people out. See that person right there? He was on a rebel side. And he killed many, 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 many people. But yeah, we all survived together. I said, how do you do it? And he said the words that God's a judge and I'm not. And the only way I can release it is under his power and under his authority because I have none. And as long as I hang on to it, it does nothing but ruin me. And he even went to the person that killed his sister because he knows her, knows him. Went to the person that killed his sister and he says, I just want you to know I release you because I have a God that is powerful and that has done a work in me and I'm hanging on to him. He's a judge. I'm not you're forgiven, and I will tell you that there's more joy in Ben Margai than I've seen in so many people in this world. Why? Because he's hanging on to the judge, hanging on to the king. Psalm 7.10 says, My shield is with my God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who is, has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend his bow and made it ready, He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. These are passages that usually pastors don't really like to preach on, but there are some passages that need to be said because of the people that have a perpetrator that they can't get out of their mind, can't get out of their heart, and it is literally destroying them inside. Just to say, God has indignation every single day. God is not a father that says, boys will be boys. God is a father who loves me, and the only way he can love me is to have even a perfect justice that's behind him. Number five, crying to God, place, embrace, puts all your emotional energy into God and nothing else. We have people that have offended us. We have situations that tear us apart. We have circumstances that are consistently wiping us out. And we have Satan that consistently and completely attacks us. Charles Spurgeon said the words, if I'm going to be bit by a dog, I want to get bit by God's dog, not Satan's. And what's he saying with that comment? He said, I'm not going to give Satan a time of day. I'm not going to give him even one thought in my mind. I'm not going to give a perpetrator one thought in my mind. I'm not going to give any situation. I'm not going to get any circumstances in my mind. I speak to one person, one person alone, and that is God and God alone. And every time I go into the quiet hours, I tell you, it's between me and God, and I'm at that foot of the cross pleading and begging for help. That is my source, and that is my source of healing. That is my source of life, because that is the source where all evil and all suffering was literally dealt with. And I'd even say all justice dealt with as well. Number six, crying to God, place embrace releases fire from the soul and nudges you one step closer to working with others. The greatest healing tool that we have is our mouth, believe it or not. 
is when we speak, healing takes place. When you're a counselor, a counselor, they'll come, people will come in, they get, they get counsel. But when they get counsel, what is a trained counselor supposed to do? I'm a trained counselor, not certified whatsoever, but I've taught how to counsel. And one of the largest things that they teach you how to do is the counselor talks 20% of the time and your clients talk 80% of the time. It's like we think, oh, no, a counselor is somebody who just comes and gives advice, and he's got to talk 80% of the time because he has all the information. No, a counselor only talks 20% of the time. And the only time he talks is to literally ask questions to keep them talking more and more and more. Because when you talk, that's what's taking place. Healing is starting to happen. And you're starting to even figure out your situation. When it comes out of your mouth, I will tell you, it's like putting water on fire that is on your heart. The mouth is a great mouthpiece, or a great tool to calm the fire, to calm the fire down. But what happens when somebody offends us? What happens if you've been sexually abused? The last thing you do is talk. The last thing you do is what? Is talk. You don't want to bring it up. You don't want it to even come out of your mouth. What do you do is you deny the fire, you swallow the fire, and you stuff it, and the only time it comes out is when you're in an argument with like your mate or argue with somebody else, and all of a sudden you are just as angry and as mad as you can possibly be that you can't even, you're not even recognizable to yourself. And you're wondering, how did that one little simple thing my husband did make me so mad? Well, I will tell you, it wasn't your husband. It was the thing that you shoved back. Way, way, way back then. That has then come to the surface. You're not even screaming at him. You're screaming at it. So what happens? We can talk. And when we talk about it to God, I'll tell you it's putting water on a fire. And it also gives you another step. If you put water on the fire by talking to God, you'll put more water on the fire by talking to somebody else who loves you, who is connected with you. And then you even put more water on the fire as you deal with it is to disclose what has taken place even to the law. But people don't talk because they can't say the first words. And the Bible says in the first words, Say them to God so you can make another step and another step and another step to get it off of your life and to get it out of your shoulders and to get it out in the open. Job 7, 7, 11 says, Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. Therefore, I will not keep silent. And he did not. I will not keep silent. I will speak out in my anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my souls. I will not shove it down. I will keep my mouth going. And I will tell you that my biggest mouthpiece is towards God. And then also leaning into others as well. Number seven, crying to God, place, embrace, makes your suffering missional. Every prayer that is given is going to be answered in one, shape, one way or another. Think of the suffering that has taken place in your life. Think of the sin that has been swallowed even by other people. Think of the situations. Think about the circumstances. Think of all that stuff that has literally come your way. Put it on the page of prayer. And if you put it on the page of prayer, guess what's going to take place? Everything's going to be done. What's going to be done? What's going to take place? Well, some of the stuff is going to be done. We won't even know until we get into heaven. But every prayer that comes out is missional. And if our suffering is spoken and specifically in prayer, it is going to turn from something that is destroying you to something that could be great in the kingdom of God. Well, what's those answers? We don't know. But we still want to make the statement specifically to God. Because when we make the statement specifically to God, you will not be suffering for a reason. 
you'll be changed for his glory, for your good, and a mission will take place that you'll be able to look back, even in your life or when you get to heaven, look back and say, because of that suffering, many people were touched, many people were saved, many people were reached. So just fast review. This is the way Job spoke. This is the way a lot of the Psalms speak. Speak directly to God. God will walk with you in your despair, and you will come out praising if you consistently, consistently do it. And that would be the challenge to survive suffering. Father, we just want to lift all of our um, hurts, our pains, our situations, our circumstances, all the sin, all the garbage that has taken place um, in our lives that are literally pulling us down and destroying us. God, we just pray that the fire does not go into the bottom of our soul, God, but the fire comes out before the cross and that water is put on it and we are healed. God, we need to be people who are healed. We need to be people who are alive. And God, you are the source to make us that way. I pray that we'll go to no other but you. In Christ's name, amen.